Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoy this week's homily. <laughs> that is one of the greatest terrible songs ever. But it does ask a really good question. <laughs> what is love? Right? What is love? Have you ever wondered that? What is love? Back in the day, in high school, for me, I was a part of a national champion show choir. Yeah, that's right. We had the most amazing and the most amazing kickball change. I mean, we had it all. We were okay singers, but we were actually really good dancers. And I, I did this throughout junior high and throughout high school. It was a really competitive sort of environment, really competitive in that it was really hard to make the squad, the team, the choir, the thing. We were the swingsation. That was our name. And we had these really great chants that parents would yell out right as we got onto stage. There's about 40 of us piling onto the stage, onto these risers, doing not just any types of dance moves, but dance moves where you were throwing your partner through the air, where you were doing all sorts of twirls and flips and dances on risers and off risers. We performed on the Big Red Boat, which is a cruise line with Looney Tunes characters down to the Bahamas. Uh, we performed at Disney World and Disneyland. We performed at Six Flags. I, we were good. Like, so when I say like we were a national championship show choir, I, I'm not kidding. Like we were actually really good. I also grew up in a family that like historically was very conservative like and, and not just conservative but but pretty fundamentalist in how they understand or understood like your relationship with God and it was it not only bordered legalism but was legalistic and one of the things that related to that was like dancing was not okay like it wasn't an okay thing and in fact like you just didn't do it like going to like going to like junior high dances or high school dances or proms was kind of frowned upon. Like that's, that's kind of my story of origin, if you will, like my, my, my religious upbringing in, in church and in life. Well, when I hit junior high, my family, my, my parents kind of began to break us away from a little bit of that fundamentalist experience and understanding the way it was, and I began to dance. Yeah. The challenge was, it wasn't necessarily widely accepted in our family that I was doing this. And my grandfather would never attend anything that I did because of the dancing. He told me that he loved me all the time. And he showed it in various ways, whether it was by telling me that he was praying for me or by giving me hugs in a fairly unaffectionate sort of family. Uh, these are the sorts of ways that, that Grandpa would kind of tell us these sorts of things. He would share all sorts of wisdom, but he just never showed up at my show choir, competitions or anything. My senior year, 
It was my final performance. And we were performing not only in front of the community, uh, where we would have literally almost 1,000 people from this small town of about 4,000 people show up at this kind of like senior night event. But senior night was a big deal because it wasn't just your final performance, but all of the seniors did their very own performances as well. And we got to do, you know, our thing. Well, my senior night, the Spice Girls had kind of hit the scene and were kind of becoming, you know, a thing, but more of like the butt of jokes thing. Yeah, so we, me and three other seniors decided to do the Spice Girls. And we, we tell me what you want, what you really, really want, and we dressed up like Spice Girls and I was Sporty Spice. I was really good looking at, as Sporty Spice. And we had, you know, the others because who, who cares about the others? It was all about Sporty Spice. And did this, and, and then we did our final performance ever. And when I got off the stage, I went to go see my parents, and standing right next to them was my grandpa. Not only did my grandpa watch me perform my final show choir performance ever, not only did he push past all of his preconceived notions and ideas of what what, what the entrapments of a, a religious fundamentalist upbringing was, but not only was he there, he watched me do the Spice Girls. <laughs> and in the end, he said, he looked at me and said, I'm really proud of you. I'm really proud of you. Love is like that. Love is like that. My grandmother, my great-grandmother, my grandfather who was there at the show choir, was, was a... Um, his mother grew up really poor. And the reason why she grew up poor, and, and not only grew up poor, but experienced like the depths of poverty uh, as, as an adult with my grandfather was because his dad left him, left them when he was a, just a little boy. And my grandma, my great-grandma did everything that, <laughs> my great-grandma Spitzer, did everything that she possibly could to like provide for my grandpa. And she eventually made her way up to Moody Bible College up in Chicago, like a, a pretty well-known Bible college. And she was a woman, and she went to school there. Not necessarily the thing that would happen back in those days, but she went, she went to Moody. And they, they ate scraps and really did everything they possibly could living on the, like they didn't live on the streets, but living in Chicago to try and figure these sorts of things out. They, they eventually, Grandma eventually graduated and moved back to, to our hometown of Decatur where she became a missionary for a church. Like the church hired her to be a missionary to the neighborhood. Kind of a really beautiful, unique sort of situation. And Grandma decided that the way in which she was going to do that was to start Sunday schools. As a single mom, already like a very like black mark on someone, as a woman, a second black mark, now she's being hired by a church. Really rare, really not the most unique thing, especially in the 40s and 50s, right? She's now working as a working mom. She made her way into the neighborhood and decided that she was going to start these Sunday schools, but she was going to start a different type of Sunday school. She was going to start a Sunday school in the black, on the black side of town. And she was going to start Sunday schools in homes for little black boys and little black girls. In, in their basements, in their living rooms, and all these sorts of things. In the 50s. 
If you know anything about American history, that's not the time for white people to engage with black culture and black people, especially in our city that I grew up in, which was a fairly segregated city. This was what she did. And not only did she start a Sunday school, but she started to multiply and grow all sorts of different Sunday schools on the black side of town. Like this was her job as a missionary. And the church kind of looked at it like, okay, <laughs> like we hired you to do stuff in the neighborhood, and this is a little different. This isn't the way that we thought this was going to work out. This isn't the way that we thought these sorts of things were going to happen, but all right, these Sunday schools grew so much and did so much in the neighborhoods for these little kids that they decided, oh my goodness, we need to start a church. The, the, the white church decided we need to start a church. But instead of starting another white church, they decided to start a black church for all of these kids. And they hired somebody from, from uh, Ohio to come in a, a, a black, well-respected pastor to come in and form all of these Sunday schools into a church. Now, this church, as it started to get started and get rolled in, because it was a black church, wouldn't be accepted by the denomination that they were a part of. It was like, ah, we're not really going to do this. We're not really going to allow you to be a part of our denomination. Why don't you just join a black denomination kind of thing? But Grandma, Grandma fought. Grandma wrote letters and talked about the pastor, and talked about the kids, and talked about the curriculum that they were going through, talked about the lives that they were leading, and all of the different children that were giving their lives to Jesus over and over and over. Grandma began to fight in the 50s for this. Actually, the, the denomination eventually folded in that church and allowed them to be a part of it. And Grandma was, she actually got a chapter in the uh, she was actually named several times in a chapter by this pastor in this pastor's autobiography about the instrumental way in which she worked to help create this church, the way in which she fought for justice, the way in which she fought for equality as a single mom in the 50s. Love is like that. There's a story in the New York Times this past week of a couple that lives under the I-90 bridge. The, the, the New York Times actually picked up this story, lives under the I-90 bridge. They had been seeing each other for about six years. They're, they're both homeless, but they fell in love. And their story of how they fell in love is actually really fascinating because it started with her stealing from him. And yet, one thing led to another, <laughs> right? It's kind of a fascinating story of one thing leading to another, and then all of a sudden, they're together. They're in relationship, and they're developing their relationship. They fall in love, and, and they decide that they want to get married. And just a few weeks ago, they actually did get married, but the way in which their whole wedding went down was because of people who have volunteered in that, in that tent city community. The way in which they volunteered there, they got to know this couple. They helped them get suits and dresses for the wedding. They helped them get a cake for the wedding. And one person even got ordained in the Universal Life Church, which is like an online ordination sort of thing, so that they then could perform the wedding. They did everything that they could. And, and at the last minute, right before the wedding, as, as they were gathering together in the living room of their, their newly ordained friend, 
who, who volunteers, they're sitting in the living room for that. Their suits and their dresses were stolen. They were robbed out of their tents. All of their stuff had been taken for this big day of celebration. And so this person, along with another couple of volunteers, helped them go get replacements for that, to, to fund it and to, to help them find what it was that they needed, to make sure that they had an extremely beautiful and special day. They were married, and they were surrounded not only by their tent city community, but by all of the volunteers that had been there working alongside of them, helping them, supporting them, encouraging them for months, even years. Love. Love is like that. It was probably about seven years ago. We were wrapping up our church service, and right outside of the windows, there was a, uh, a, a bus stop, a, a pretty major, we're on a pretty major thoroughfare, and a, a bus would kind of just come through and stop and pick up tons of people and, and go on. There was a, a man, he was a 71-year-old Pacific Islander man who had just gotten off work as a security guard. And as he was making his way to the bus stop, he kind of stumbled on the curb and fell. But when he fell, he was struck by the bus, a double-decker kind of accordion type of bus. Not only was he struck, but he went underneath the tires and was drugged for just a little bit of space. A large commotion started to gather around the man, and, and people began to scream and shout. And through the window, I noticed something had happened and had gone on. And I, I made my way outside real quick just to see what was happening. And, and sure enough, they said, do you know anybody that's an EMT or a paramedic? Well, we had a couple that were in our church that were there that morning. And I, I made my way to them, and I said, hey, would you run outside? Something pretty bad has happened. Could you go and check on this man until the fire department gets here. He says, absolutely. He made his way out with two other, three other people. As they began to like, make their way out, they see him, and, and one of the men kind of dove under the bus while the other two kind of crawled under. And they sat with the man as his life began to slip away. In talking with them afterwards about what they were doing under the bus, I said, we were just holding his hand. And we're praying with him, knowing that there was nothing that we could do. The fire department showed up, and they, they, they used all sorts of equipment to lift the bus because he was truly pinned underneath that tire. And they lifted up the bus, and they got him out. And he didn't pass right there, but it was shortly after arriving at the hospital that he did. They, they reached out to his family, to the man's family, to talk to him about his, to talk with them about his last moments and what had happened and what was going on. But they were under that bus, holding his hand, giving him comfort, making sure that he was cared for and loved as his life slipped away. Love is like that. Love is like that. In October of 2006, a lone gunman walked into a single-room schoolhouse, an Amish schoolhouse in, uh, in Pennsylvania, an Amish country in Pennsylvania. There were about 26 people in the room. 
And as he walked into the room with his gun, he let the 15 boys and adults leave, but he kept the 11 girls. As they ran, they, they ran as hard and as fast as they could to get to the nearby farm so that they could call the authorities for help. As the gunman saw these 11 girls, he began to tie them up and held them hostage while he figured out what it was that he was going to do. The authorities eventually made their way onto the scene, but they were very cautious, not wanting to approach the building for fear of what he might do to the girls that are inside. Two girls, the, the oldest, these, the, the ages ranged from 6 to 13. Two of the oldest girls, a 13-year-old and 11-year-old, they were sisters. And they said to the gunman, they said, please don't hurt anyone, but shoot us first. A 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, shoot us first and spare the others. Love is like that. And he did. He shot both of them, killing one and wounding the other pretty severely before he began to shoot in succession all of the other girls. Five of them died, and six of them survived. As before he turned the gun on himself, as the families received word and news of what was going on, their immediate response was one of forgiveness. In fact, one of, the, one of the fathers said, we must not think evil of this man. He had a mother and a wife and a soul. One of the other members of the, the Amish community explained later, he said, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. Hours after the shooting, this community extended forgiveness to that man. After learning of the death of their children, extending forgiveness to this man. One of the Amish men held Robert's sobbing father in his arms, the gunman's father, held him in his arms for as long as an hour to comfort him. In fact, they, about 30 members of the Amish community, attended the gunman's funeral. They showed up to extend forgiveness. And the widow of the killer was one of the very few outsiders that was invited to the funeral of the victims. She wrote, the, the, the widow wrote a letter to her neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, their grace, and their mercy. And she wrote, your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. 
Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Love is like that. Oft quoted in weddings and written to the Corinthian church way back in the day, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul, an apostle, wrote about the role of the church and those who proclaim Jesus as Lord. He said, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. She was a pretty tall drink of water. And by tall, she stood about three, four inches taller than me. And she made her way into our community, and I, I met her at the door, and I said, hi, it's nice to meet you. And she said, hi, my name's Michelle. I said, oh, I'm Aaron. Well, welcome. It, it, it's good to have you here this morning. We've got, some, we've got some treats in the back. We've got some coffee, you know, lots of sugar, lots of goodness for the morning because it's early. Go ahead, have, have at it. But as she began to finish our conversation, our, our pleasantries, and our, as our introduction, I noticed that she was a little different. There, there was something about her that I couldn't quite put my finger on, and I was just like, I have no idea what this is. I have, I have no idea what makes her different. She, she went back, and she started to load up a napkin full of, like, brownies. It was like, bloop, 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 bloop. I was like, oh, it's like the Leaning Tower of Pisa of brownies. Like, it was just huge, right? Like, I was like, oh, that's amazing. And then I saw her, like, prepare her coffee, and she started to dump, like, copious amounts of sugar in it. And by copious, I mean, like, I looked, I was like, do you want some coffee with that sugar? Like, holy cow, I, I don't think of that. Like, I like my coffee sweet, but wow, that's like Kool-Aid coffee, right? Like, that's unbelievable. And I, well, oh, maybe, maybe that's it. I'll bet you she's a recovering meth addict. Because oftentimes recovering meth addicts, when they're on methadone, they, they have to replace some of that sugar in their body and their sweet tooths go absolutely bonkers. Right? And so I was like, oh, that's got to be it. That's got to be it. Maybe that's, that's really what it is. And she sat down, and I got up later in the service to begin to speak, and I kept catching eyes with her, and I was like, that's not it. There's something different about her, but I just have no idea what it is. Like, it was just like sometimes somebody strikes you odd. Like, you, you meet them, and you're like, they strike you as odd, and you just can't quite put your finger on what it is that strikes them, strikes you about them oddly, Right? Like, well, whatever. Like, there's a lot of things, like, side note, a little bit of a bunny trail, if you will. When you're preaching, when you're teaching, when you're speaking up front, a lot of different things run through your mind. <laughs> and that's what was happening with, with Michelle. I, I got done and began to lead us into communion, and we had a couple people that would come forward and hold the, the juice and the, and, the, and the bread. And as... I made my way into the back, I, I noticed that this was our first time in the way in which we did communion, like it was, in the way in which we do communion here is very optional. Like you don't have to participate in the act of communion if you don't want to. And 
I noticed that she started to stand up. And I was like, oh, hey, that's cool. All right. She feels welcome and comfortable and able to do this. And as she stood up, her hair kind of got caught in the chair, right? And you're like, oh, that, that's going to hurt. But as she came up, her wig started to come off, and there it was. That's what had struck me so odd for so long. Michelle was a man. And here she was, with all of her shame being revealed to everyone around her. She quickly grabbed the wig and began to put it back into place as quickly as possible, and I thought for sure that she was going to get up and, and, and walk out. But she didn't. She got up, she made her way into the aisle, collected herself, and very proudly began to make her way forward to receive the bread and the juice. One of the women that was standing there holding the elements noticed that she was coming forward, had seen everything unfold in front of her, and you could just see her eyes get really big and her mind begin to churn and wonder, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Michelle made her way forward, and when she approached her, she did everything she was supposed to do. She reached out the bread. She said, the body of Christ, broken for you. And she reached out the juice, and she said, the blood of Christ, shed you. It's perhaps one of the most beautiful experiences of communion that I've ever seen in my life. Love is like that. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, not only had dinner with his closest friends, but as they were sitting around the table, he even knew that one of his friends had just betrayed him, had sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And yet Jesus leaned down that night, on that Thursday night, during that Last Supper, and washed the feet of the disciple that betrayed him, showing him a different possibility, showing him that even though I know what you have done, and even though during this dinner he had said, I know one of you has betrayed me, he washed the feet. Love is like that. And as Jesus made his way to the cross, and as he hung upon the cross, and as the soldiers sat down in front of him and rolled dice for his garments, and as they spat upon him, and as they hit him, and as they beat him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because love is like that. As Jesus hung on the cross and the man next to him, one of the other thieves on the tree leaned over and said, when you reach paradise, don't forget me. He said, I promise you this, that I will remember you in my Father's kingdom because love is like that. Jesus' love is like that. We serve a beautiful and amazing God of love. And love is oftentimes one of the hardest things to understand 
because we don't experience or know the true depths and reaches and nature of what this love is. He's saying oftentimes we don't experience an unconditional sort of love. The loves that we, can, that we experience are conditional. They have boundaries. They have sets. But the love of God is something vastly different. It's unconditional that reaches beyond anything that we know or can experience. Because love is like that. This morning I want to invite you into that space to begin to think about and ponder a little bit more to reflect upon what the, the farthest reaches of God's love looks like in our lives, in your life, and in the life of others. What it means for us to be a community and a people that, that serve a God of love, but also what it means for us to actually be reflections of God's love to the people that are around us. What does it mean for us to know this God and then to reflect this God into the world around us? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love. And we know that it's confusing. We know that it doesn't make the most sense to us because it's a hard love to wrap our minds around and to wrap our hearts around and our souls around. And Father, I think the reason why is because it's, it's a foreign concept to us of who you are. And Father, this morning as we enter into this space, as we remain in this space of your love, Father, I pray that you would pierce our hearts, that you would pierce our minds with a greater understanding of just who you are. Give us just a small taste, a small taste in such a way that allows us that allows us to not only hunger for more, but to take a next step into that space of your love. And as we take a step into that next space of your love, Father, may we also reach behind us and hold the hand of someone else and pull them into that love as well. Father, we lift all these things up to you in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.